Well, Jesus died so that each of us could be saved. And I'm so thankful that all of you are here with us today. Those of you who have joined us online, I appreciate you also very much as well. I want to um, make a special invitation. Next Sunday is Easter Sunday, right? Just a very special day. We celebrate the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so we're going to have um, both of our services live at 9 and at 1035. And so you can come to either one of those. I know many of you at home have been kind of waiting for something, and I know because of health reasons some of you can't come, but next Sunday would be a great Sunday to be able to come back and begin to worship with us. And so we celebrate the fact that Jesus Christ is um, our Redeemer and our Savior, and so Easter Sunday is a very special day. So uh, this week I kind of looked back over some of my favorite movies, and especially some of my favorite movie heroes and uh, try to come up with some names. But um, if you were to share some names of some movie heroes, who, that, who might that be? And those of you online, you can type the name in the uh, chat box there. So who would be a, a movie hero you might have? Superman. Josie Wales. Okay. Wasn't anticipating that one. Any others? Rudy. Okay, Rudy's a good hero. There you go. What? Any other? Come on, at least one more. What? A fireman. There you go. Well, here's some of the names I wrote down. What did you say? Spider-Man. Oh. Well, firemen are good guys, right, Ronnie? I mean, come on. There you go. They're heroes in the real true sense of the word, right? So I... I what? John Wayne. There you go. So I wrote down some names. Um, Atticus Finch. Anybody know what movie that's tied to? Kill a Mockingbird. Um, James Bond, of course. Indiana Jones. Um, how about George Bailey? He would be a hero, right? Rocky or Rambo, whichever movie you're watching there. Anybody know who Ellen Ripley was the hero of? What movie that was? There you go. Alien. Says something about Josie Will and the alien back there. Um, Han Solo, Norma Ray, Dirty Harry, um, Detective John McClane. How about Roy Hobbs? So we love our heroes in movies, don't we? You know, they come in and they save the day, whoever is trapped or whoever, you know, needs rescued. And we all love this idea of being rescued, but the story that really impacts us or moves us the most is the hero who, in the midst of rescuing someone, they know that they're going to lose their lives, in which not only are we rescued, but the hero gives up their life for you and for me. Harry Potter, the boy who lived, Come to die. Have you ever noticed how many stories include sacrifice? Like in Armageddon, where one man dies to save the world. Harry! Harry! You can't do this to me! This is my job! You go take care of my little girl now. That's your job. Or I Am Legend, where Will Smith gives himself for humanity. It happens again and again. Whether it's Katniss Everdeen in The Hunger Games. I volunteer as tribute! Captain Miller in Saving Private Ryan, or Maximus in Gladiator. We love to see a hero lay down their life for the greater good. But why? Is it convention? A coincidence? Or maybe we're just out of ideas? Or perhaps there's some bigger reason that we watch Obi-Wan get struck down by Darth Vader. 
Spider-Man risked life and limb for strangers, and Braveheart died to free his people. When the hero dies willingly to save others, we're in touch with something deep. It resonates with us so strongly because deep down we know this is ultimate love. You'll die in seconds! And in the ultimate love story, God stepped down into a broken world with no hope for survival. He willingly sacrificed himself, dying a brutal and horrific death. He died to defeat the ultimate supervillain, death itself. And his death brought victory. The movies we love are tugging at the part of us that knows the truth. There is a hero who defends the weak, who loves us more than his own life, who gives himself to save the world. These stories point us to the ultimate story. So next time you see a tale of sacrificial love, remember, the hero has come, the love is real, and the story is true. So the hero has come, love is real, the story is very true. And that's the story of Jesus Christ. See, I know something about myself, because I know myself well, that I am in desperate need of being rescued. I mean, on my very best day, when I think I'm doing the very best I possibly can, I fall so far short of what God wants and needs out of me in my life. And I've, I'm guessing that most of you recognize that about yourself as well, that you know that even on your very best day, we fall so far short of God's expectations, of God's desire in our hearts and in our lives. And we know that on our own, we are lost, but that's where God steps in. And that's where God provides Jesus as the sacrifice for our sins. He gave his life to rescue us. And I know, for me, that Jesus is my rescuer. And I'm wondering, is he yours? So we're in this series entitled Rescue, in which we're taking a look at the um, Passion Week, the, the last week of the life of Jesus. We're in the Gospel of Luke because that's kind of where we're at this whole entire year, right? Our goal is to see Christ, to get to know Him better every day. So we're spending the whole year in the Gospel of Luke. So right now we're in, Gospel, in Luke 22, 23, and 24 as we take a look at this story about God rescuing us through Jesus Christ. And so one of the things I want to encourage you to do this week, so we have a very special event, a very special experience for you called Rescued by Way of the Cross. We've had a whole team of people working, and they're going to be working after the service today to transport this room into an opportunity for you and I to experience um, in, a, in a unique way what it was like that last week of Christ's life. And so it's going to be Monday through Friday of this week from 6 to 8 each evening. But then Monday through Wednesday, you could come in from 1 to 3. You come on your own anytime. It's kind of a self-guided thing. There'll be somebody to give you some directions, to hand you a guidebook to help you. But then you'll just be able to experience that. Don't miss this. I mean, it's a profound experience as we consider this last week of Jesus' life. And so the first week of this series, we looked at the rescue plan, how Jesus, through communion, 
You know, he took the Passover, changed it to communion for us to remember Jesus Christ. And as we celebrate the death of Jesus Christ, we remember that the death of Jesus is to remember the power for you and I to really live. Then the, the second week, last week, we took a look at the life of Peter. We learned that there was a traitor among us. And we learned that that traitor is us. And yet as we looked at the story of Peter in the garden denying Jesus, we learned this lesson that there is always another chapter to be written in our life when we turn back to Jesus Christ. And so today we come face to face with the crucifixion of Jesus, with the cross, of Jesus hanging on the cross in this period of time, which was such a challenging period of time. And so he sacrificed his life for you and me. So we're in Luke chapter 23. So I want to invite you to turn your Bibles to Luke 23, your phone or your tablet. Those of you who are online, click the Bible tab down there to come to Luke chapter 23. And we discover what, what I'm calling the great exchange, Jesus' life for your life and my life, the, the sinless righteous one for those of us who are unrighteous. And we learn that Jesus becomes the bridge between you know, our sinful lost state and eternity in heaven, forgiveness with him. And so here's where we're going today, and it's simply this, that Jesus saved others because he refused to save himself. He knew that we desperately needed him. So last week in our story, we ended up with Peter running from the courtyard. Jesus is on trial there. You know, Peter is sobbing, devastated at what he has done. And then Jesus gets led from the high priest's house to the Sanhedrin, to Pilate, back to Herod, or to Herod back to Pilate. And finally, Pilate releases Barabbas to the people. He finally agrees, is willing to have Jesus Christ executed. And we're going to look in a moment at the variety of people that were in the story, and yet we, we all know that the heart of the story is what Jesus Christ did on the cross, his sacrifice, his death on the cross. That's crucial for you and I understanding his love for us. So I'm going to begin in Luke chapter 23 and verse 33. Luke writes this, when they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. So the skull, when they came to the place called the skull. So in Aramaic, uh, which was another language used in that day, it was the term Golgotha. Or in the Latin, it is the term Calvary. That's why those are probably familiar to you. It's the skull, the place of the skull is located outside the city. It was very, very close to the city, usually right on a main road because they wanted to make sure when they crucified somebody, everybody saw that and took notice that this is what happens if you cross, you know, Rome. Now, why was it called the place of the skull? So some think that it was probably because of the shape of the hill. You know, it was up a little higher so you could see that, and it looked like a skull. You know, maybe there was a couple of caves that were the eye sockets or something. That's what a lot of, you know, um, commentators think. But it could also just be called the place of the skull because that was a symbol for death, and that's where execution happened, right? And so that was the execution chamber, in essence, that was right there. But it says that they crucified him there. They crucified Jesus there. Now, crucifixion was not a Jewish um, 
way of killing people. They couldn't do that. It was against the law. And so that's why they had to turn to the Romans. Rome is the one who taking, you know, from other cultures, devised crucifixion to be as long as possible to, so that somebody could suffer as much as possible. And they did it in a very public place, you know, so that people could see that suffering and people would also take notice here. They crucified Jesus there. His cross became the instrument of my salvation. A cross. On the rooftops of a million church buildings. On the flags of nations. And on a thousand logos. A cross can say, I will keep my promise. And a cross can say, I won't. A cross is found where two ways meet. And a cross can be your destination. A cross can say, you're in. And a cross can say, you're out. There are times when you're glad to see a cross. And there are times when you're not. A cross can stand for hatred. And a cross can signify love. For some, a cross is filled with superstition. For others, it's just another religious symbol. A cross can be a warning sign, and a cross can be a sign of help. There are crosses that make you smile, crosses for sadness and loss, and crosses for remembrance. A cross can be so many different things. has been used to kill. And in this, there is one cross that stands apart. The cross where God's own Son gave his life. This cross is where God showed us his love. So the cross of Jesus Christ is what Luke puts center stage. But Luke's MO is to bring many other people into the story. And there's a whole host of people here. It gives us a different perspective kind of an idea about what people are thinking about there. And in this story, there's several. You've got, of course, the soldiers who are kind of indifferent. They're just doing their job. They're good at executing get people. They've done it all their life. Of course, later, the soldiers are also mocking. Then you've got Simon of Cyrene, a guy who just happens to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. Look at verse 26. It says, as the soldiers led him away, they seized Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way in from the country, and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. So you got the perspective of this guy just helping Jesus, didn't know what he was doing there. We don't even know the impact that it had on him. 
And then there's this group of women. They were the mourners. Now, whether they were paid mourners or they were really sad, we're not quite certain. But Jesus turns and he addresses this group of women as he's walking or carrying the cross. Verse 27, a large number of people followed him, including the women who mourned and wailed for him. Jesus turned and said to them, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children, for the time will come when you will say, Blessed are the childless women, the wombs that never bore, and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For people do these things when the tree is green. What will happen when it is dry? So what is Jesus saying to them? These are words of warning about what's to happen to Jerusalem. In other words, God is about to bring judgment on the Jewish people for what they're doing at that present moment, which is executing the Son of God. This was God's wrath to come in 70 AD. Rome came and just completely decimated the city of Jerusalem and specifically the temple. And how awful is the judgment and the wrath of God that comes and how unnecessary. Because Jesus Christ paid for our forgiveness and for our freedom. He offers that freely to all of us. But Jesus is wanting to make sure it's clear to those women and to others that when rejection comes, accountability to God will also follow. And then we got the rulers who are there with Jesus. Verse 35 <clears throat> says, the, Luke writes, the people stood watching and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others, let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. And the soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. They're mocking Jesus. It's almost like the temptation when Satan tempts Jesus, if you are the son of God. Imagine the impact that would have had on Jesus, but they misjudged what was taking place there, right? Um, what they think is impossible for Jesus to achieve on the cross is precisely what he's accomplishing, salvation for mankind. So a good question for you and I to ask as we read through this account of Luke and think it through is, so what's my perspective? Where am I at in this group of people? Where do I stand? How do I see things? Am I making myself there and available? Where, where do you find yourself? There's an old hymn that we used to sing at Easter, Were you there when they crucified my Lord? So where are you in that story? And so uh, I want to talk a little more specifically for the next couple of moments about two other characters that are in this story, and they are the criminals that hang one on one side of the cross, Right? on their own cross and one on the other. That's why you always see three crosses that are on the hill there. Luke goes, uh, writes this in verse 32. Two other men, both criminals, were also let out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left. Now, Luke's account, you know, we've got four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Luke's the only one who has words coming out of the mouth, um, specifically records the words of the criminals. Mark, Matthew and Mark um, mentioned them that they said something, but it was just kind of a general statement. And so Luke gives us a conversation 
between these two men and between Jesus as they're hanging all these hours on the cross. And it's really the two criminals are a contrast between how all of us, all of humanity responds to Jesus. So criminal number one, we'll call him the mocker. He joins in with mocking there. Um, he, he joins in with the insults. Verse 39, one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him and he said, aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. Isn't it interesting what pain does to us? When you're in excruciating pain, the kind of things that we say and we do, maybe he's hoping that what the religious leaders are saying, because he's kind of repeating that, right? If, you know, save yourself. I think what he's kind of doing is hoping maybe Jesus, you know, is Superman up there on the cross, and that if I can goad him enough, he'll get angry at all those guys, and he'll just obliterate him, right? And then we'll all be saved. But I, I think he probably, like all of us, we know our guilt. You know, we know the depths of despair and depravity in our own hearts and our own lives. And it's, it's easier to attack that which is good in front of us than it is to take responsibility for our own sin. And so the one criminal represents those who reject Jesus. You know, whether we do it through anger or through mocking you know, whether we do it through silence or we do it through blaming, you know, the hurt and the pain of our own choice, it can get in the way of us seeing the reality of the cross and why Jesus Christ came. Maybe you've been there. There's a lot of people we know that are there. Until we take responsibility for our own sin, um, we will stay like the first criminal. The second criminal I'll call the, the repentant one. Now, I mentioned to you Matthew Mark, you know, has the, the thieves kind of a general statement. What, it, what they say is they both joined in mocking Jesus Christ. And so it started that way, but what's interesting is somewhere along the way, um, something must have happened to the second criminal that made him begin to recognize something in Jesus because his attitude towards Jesus changed. And if you and I spend enough time with Jesus, our attitude will change. Verse 40, but the other criminal rebuked him. So the one criminal now is rebuking the other one, right? Don't you fear God, he said, since you're under the same sentence? We're punished justly for we're getting what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. So notice kind of what's going on here. First of all, he takes responsibility. He reaches this place and he's like, you know what? We're getting what we deserve. Rather than the excuses or the blaming or the mocking that could happen with so many people, rather than trying to justify our behavior or actions, what does he do? He, he literally, he repents. He's saying, I'm guilty because I, I deserve this. I've done these kind of things. Um, I think he recognizes the innocence of Jesus. In the midst of this, he sees how Jesus is reacting and responding. He's hearing the same words that we read through the gospel writers. And somehow, in his limited understanding, he understands, he sees that Jesus is not just a man. You know, even in the phrase that he uses, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He's recognizing him as some kind of authority, some kind of a king. He, he knows somehow that salvation is found in Jesus. And like 
in a last-ditch effort, it's like he's putting his trust in Jesus Christ. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now, Jesus' response back to him is one of seven different responses that Jesus gives on the cross. Now, Luke only has three of them. The other gospel writers include others of them. But Jesus answered him. This is verse 43. Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus never ignores a cry for help. When we call out and we cry for help, he never ignores a cry for help. So look at, look at the phrase there. Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Today, not tomorrow, not maybe, not someday. Today you will be with me in paradise. Paradise to a Jew was the realm of the dead, but it was reserved for the righteous dead. Um, there were other pictures of that, but that was the picture they had in there. And then what, what, what does Jesus say that's most profound? Today you will be what? With? What is that? Today you will be with me. Jesus is saying to him, you're going to be with me today. And this criminal represents those who turn to Jesus in faith and trust. And those who turn to Jesus will be saved. All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Whether it's the moment of your death, right, like the thief on the cross, or the moment of the greatest pain in your life, or just a moment of recognition in your life, Jesus, when you cry out to him in faith and trust, he will save us. He saved others because he refused to save himself. Peter says this in Acts 4.12, salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Romans 10, 13, Paul says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So I want you to think about it in this way. You picture the cross, and you see Jesus and the two thieves that were on both sides of the cross. And we go back to the very beginning of time, Garden of Eden. You've got Adam and Eve in a perfect setting, right? In a perfect environment. Everything was perfect. And then what happens? They sin. They eat the fruit that they were told not to eat of. And as a result of that, this huge chasm comes between Adam, mankind, the righteous on this side, and the unrighteous, which is us. And it's such a huge chasm. We can't be good enough to possibly ever get back to God. It's impossible. And the Terrible part of Scripture is that the punishment reserved for those who stay in their sin when they died is a place called hell. That's not where God wants us to go. He has no desire for any of us to end up in hell. And so that's why God sent Jesus to die on the cross. And the cross of Jesus Christ is the bridge between the unrighteous and the righteous holy God. It's the bridge between the one thief and the other thief. And so the question is, how do I go from this side of the bridge of being unrighteous to the side? Well, how, how, how am I saved? How, how do I make that particular decision? And Scripture is very clear in that. Number one, we believe. That is, putting our faith and our trust in Jesus. That's what the thief on the cross did, right? I mean, it's somehow in his limited understanding. It's not like I have to have 100% belief in everything. I've got to know everything. But it's like belief. I've got to believe. I've got to put my trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. I need to repent. To repent is to turn in my attitude and in my behavior 
recognizing what sin has done. Sin is what put Jesus Christ on the cross. My sin does. And so I choose to acknowledge my sin like the thief on the cross, right? Now, he doesn't say he repented, but he definitely acknowledged his sin and turned back to him. But then Scripture tells us that we need to be baptized. To, to be baptized, it, baptism, you know, is like a mock tomb. You know, you go all the way under the water. Now, sometimes people will say, well, you know, Doug, the thief on the cross wasn't baptized, and you're exactly right. But who's talking to him face to face? It's Jesus himself. Jesus literally can let anybody into heaven that he wants to let into heaven. And then another thing it's important to recognize and understand is when does a will come into effect? Remember Jesus talked about he's the the new covenant in my blood. We talked about that at communion time, how it was the blood that he was going to shed. He hadn't yet because it was communion, but he is now on the cross. It is the blood that he shed for our sins. That's what covers our sinfulness. A will comes into effect when a person dies. And so for you and I who live on this side of the cross, right, not in the era of, of law, but in the era of grace, Scripture teaches us. In fact, if you look at every example in the, in the book of Acts about a person being saved, in every example they were baptized. And so I, I put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ. I'm, I'm like the thief on the cross. And that I recognize, you know what, I'm lost and I need him. And so Luke goes on, verse 44 It was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon, for the sun stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Huge, two huge symbols of God, judgment, and God's working there. And then Jesus called out in a loud voice, Father, into your hand I commit my spirit. And when he had said this, he breathed his last. But when he says those words, as you're standing there, again, that's what Luke's trying to get us to do, to picture that. It's almost like Jesus is lost. You know what? He couldn't save himself. Obviously, he couldn't save us. With his last nine breath, with the blood running out of his body, it's like, you know, all hope had run away from him. But how often it seems that what is true on the surface in God's working is the exact opposite of what is true. Because we know now that Jesus is our rescuer. We know now that he saved others. Why? Because he refused to save himself on the cross. He knew that that's what was necessary. And without the cross, the whole world would face the judgment of God. So here's how Peter says it many years later in 1 Peter 2. He says, he committed no sin. So he's talking about Jesus. And no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate, right? He didn't do that on the cross. When he suffered, he made no threats. He wasn't mocking. He wasn't insulting. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. But then notice this. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. So where are you? Where am I? You know, am I the thief on this side, mocking? Am I on the thief on this side who turns to Jesus Christ? 
It is only through the death of Jesus that we have hope. Jesus saved others because he refused to save himself. And the question today is, will you accept that sacrifice? Will you allow Jesus to be the one who will rescue you? Or will you, like much of the world, turn away from Jesus, reject what he offers to us? I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to sing another one of our songs together. And if there is a choice or a decision you need to make, I would love to talk to you about it now or after the service about your relationship with Jesus Christ. So let me pray for us, and then let's worship together. Lord God, we love you. We thank you for your mercy and your grace that you, Father, died on the cross, even in the face of such horrible pain and anguish, physically and emotionally because of the insults but Lord even more than that because of the sin my sin that you bore in your body on the tree so that I could have salvation and Lord I pray that if there's anyone listening online anyone in this building Father God that has not turned to you in belief and repentance and confession and baptism Lord that they would make that choice even this day Lord As we worship you in your name we pray, amen.